Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest, and I do see the guests in the chat room, and you wish to participate in the chat, and you know chatters, I'd love to hear you, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog talk radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Now, following the show, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of Afrogenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, please like both pages. Well, the show tonight is entitled The Reverend Peter W. Clark, Sweet Preacher and Steadfast Reformer by Dr. Elaine Parker Adams. Well, Dr. Parker Adams is the great-granddaughter of the Reverend Peter Clark. The New Orleans native forged a career in public service. And like Peter Clark, Elaine Adams has great esteem for education and social justice. In 1991, she was the founding president of Houston Community College Northeast. Earlier, she served the state of Texas as Assistant Commissioner for Educational Opportunity Planning, coordinating statewide efforts to diversify enrollment in higher education. Her previous book publication was Media and the Young Adult, which she co-edited for the American Library Association. She is engaged in genealogical and historical research in hopes to share more information on the contributions of the African-American community. So let me give a warm welcome to Dr. Elaine Parker-Adams to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Dr. Adams. I think we were muted, but you're on. Welcome, Dr. Adams. Thank you for inviting me to be on your show. I look forward to it. 
Yes, I have, and I want to tell everybody a little story. Some some of the listeners may know that I have an ancestor, a great grandfather by the name of Peter Clark. And so I've really found it quite ironic that I received a phone call from a researcher who met you at a library. Yes. And he said, Bernice, there's a lady at this library. She's in the genealogy section in Baton Rouge, and she is researching Peter Clark. You need to talk to her. Well, it's amazing that now, and that had to be at least four or five years ago, you have a book out on Reverend Peter Wellington Clark. In fact, we were both looking at Peter Clark, but it was a different Peter Clark. And so we're going to talk about your research and what you uncovered on Peter Clark, but to be in a community, to be in the Florida parish with two Peter Clarks and two researchers is just something that I'm, I'm still thrilled about, even when I talk to you and I learn more about your research. So I'm just so happy that you are willing to share your research with us tonight. So why don't we start with, well, why did you decide to research the life of the Reverend Peter W. Clark? Bernice, I had uh, very little information on Peter Clark because, of course, he died in 1914, and uh, my grandfather uh, passed in 1917. He was a young man of uh, in his early 20s. And so essentially my grandmother uh, took my uncle and my mother uh, to New Orleans, and uh, they enrolled in schools that were Catholic, and they decided that they would like to become Catholic. So essentially there was a break from the Methodist religion to the Catholic religion, and we did very little discussion of uh, the past as far as religion would go or my my, uh, great-grandfather's work. Uh, My grandmother remained Methodist throughout her life, uh, but we knew very little about the religion. As I got old enough to uh, have time to do the research as a retiree, genealogy was one of the things that I engaged in, and I went to the page that talked about Louisiana Methodists on the Internet, and I looked up 19th century pastors, assuming that I'd find Peter Clark. It didn't Uh happen. When I got to that page, I I noticed that all of the Methodist ministers in the Louisiana area were white. And I said, well, maybe I've I've got something that I've got to figure out here in terms of whether we're talking about the same religion or, you know, exactly what, what happened as far as him not being on the record. And eventually I I spoke with the person who was responsible for that page, and the gentleman was was very nice, but it was obviously uh, uh, an oversight when the Southern Methodists reunited and we had the United Methodist Forum. They took their ministers and posted them as the ministers for the 19th century pastors, 
uh, and kind of over, overlooked the fact that there was a very active Methodist church involving blacks that was was in Louisiana, and that those ministers should have been included. So at that point, it, it, it hit me very hard that if we don't write our own history, it's very possible that we just simply get dropped out. We, we, we don't exist because we haven't kept the record ourselves. And so that's when I really engaged in trying to find out everything I could about the Methodist Church and the Reverend Peter W. Clark. Well, well, now, were you instrumental in getting them to uh, actually recognize the fact that the uh, African Americans were active in the in the Methodist Church? Yes, as soon as I contacted the gentleman, he's now deceased. His name was Tim Abair. Uh, he was he was it was a very polite conversation. We uh, recognized what had happened that he had. Uh, received a partial history and didn't real, realize or didn't think about the fact there was a uh, another history that was existing at the same time, uh, and so he was looking at the world from his eyes. His vision was a white vision, and he thought he had all of the 19th century pastors, and the black pastors had been omitted, but I don't think it was an intentional act. I think it was just simply... Uh, sort of a, a vision that had a narrow scope, and once he learned that there was a whole another his a whole his history that needed to be discussed, uh, he openly invited uh, us to send the photographs of our ministers, uh, and I had two, in fact, because Peter Clark's brother was also a Methodist minister in the 19th uh, century. So I sent in the photographs of Peter Clark. Um, my cousin Hezekiah Clark sent in the photographs of his grandfather, who was uh, Elijah Clark. And there were uh, there was a picture of early Black Methodist ministers, and I think Tim uh, carved out the photographs and placed them in. But certainly he opens now with a plea that anyone who has photographs of these pastors should send them in and I'm hoping perhaps someone will be listening to this show and recognize they have someone in the family that needs to be on that page. That's right and I think that's it's a good thing to mention that first of all you brought this information to their attention but also you had a photo and if there are others listening out there if you have photos Send those photos in. So let's talk about how did you organize your research and how long did it take? Uh, this took me several years, but I was I, I kind of had a wonderful um, stroke of luck. It turned out that Peter Clark liked to report his activities, and he reported them regularly. Uh, so I, I discovered um, that the Southwestern Christian Advocate, which was a black Methodist newspaper, often carried stories uh, that he had uh, submitted regarding what he was doing with his church uh, activities. So he helped a lot. He seemed to sort of know that at some point in time a person would sit down and be able to assemble his his life story uh, through his own articles that he had submitted and 
after uh, I got through to the newspaper and got all of those articles read, and it took me a, a while because this was a weekly with no index. So essentially from about 1880 to 1915, I had to read each newspaper to find out if there were if he had been mentioned or if he had written anything. Uh, it took me a while to do that. And then those stories that he wrote would lead me into other historical research. He'd mentioned something that I needed to to know more about, so then I would go and start reviewing other documents, histories, newspapers, directories. Well, let's step back for a minute because this is wonderful. He he did include uh, several articles in, in the Southwest Christian Advocate. Well, let's he was virtually a weekly. Uh, he was virtually a, a a weekly contributor. He was he was a, it, it was just amazing that uh, this man was was so consistent that each of his assignments could be uh, uh, visualized from what he would submit to the paper. Oh, wow. And there's a, a comment coming out of the chat that the Southwestern Christian Advocate carried several ads for separated families due to slavery in the 1880s yes. 90s. Yes, that was one so, of the most touching. I'm, I'm sorry, I was going to say that was one of the most touching things about uh, that newspaper. Uh, you'd see these ads where uh, after slavery had ended, families had been uh, separated and were now trying to get back together. And you would see ads. And often the minister was the person who was the communicator. You would send in, if you knew someone, uh, you would send that information to the minister. He might have been the person who was the most literate in the in the community, but often he was the center for getting these people back together. Yes, yes. Well, take us back for a second as to when was Peter Clark born, and uh, what did you find out about his his early life? He was born about 1859. Now, one thing I guess you know and anyone in genealogy uh, knows is that uh, census records and birth records you know, they may have variations of a few years or so. So he may have been a, been born a little before 1859, but 1859 is the date that we've used as his birth date. He uh, was born in Port Hudson, Missis, uh, Port Hudson, Louisiana, which is on the Mississippi River. Uh, in terms of uh, location, it's on a bluff, and it was the last holdout on the Mississippi. Uh, before the Union uh, soldiers were able to, to to seize control of that river, it was a very long siege. So it was it must have been a very tough area uh, during his early days when the struggle between the two uh, uh, the rebels and the Union soldiers was taking place. So he was right there, living in a an area under siege. Uh, after the war, uh, he uh, farmed with his mother, and his father was also a minister. But uh, it, it, like many families in that period, uh, the father had at least two, uh, three families going uh, at the same time. And so 
his biggest influence was his mom. His mother was a person who kind of saw in him the potential for his being a minister and a, a religious leader. Mm-hmm. Well, now he's at this point in his life where this has to be a point where he's educated because you're saying he's writing uh, in the 1880s, 1890s. So where did he get his education? This is this is something sort of curious because a lot of it appears to be self. Uh, uh, he was self-taught. Uh, he writes uh, in one of his editorials that he's not like these uh, young ministers who have an opportunity to go to theological school. Uh, he probably learned in a, a Friedman School, and that would have been an adult school at night where folks would come from the fields or come from wherever they were, uh, you know, working, and uh, learn how to read and write. And and I'm I'm assuming because he writes so frequently, he did a lot of practicing. Uh And he felt very confident in his writing. He seemed to be a person who believed that he had something to say, and so he, he wrote editorials as well as these little articles about his activities. But, you know, he's, okay, he has made a conscious decision to become involved with the Methodist Church. Why would you think that he chose to go to the Methodist Church as opposed to some of the other uh, religions? Well, I tell you, uh, uh, Bernice, he, his father was a Methodist. They were Methodists. Uh, in in the previous generation, his father and mother were were both Methodists. Uh, his father was a Methodist minister, also named Peter Clark. Um, the Methodist Church had a reputation for being anti-slavery and very much uh, uh, pro uh, cultural diversity. And so, I think this was the attraction. This was a church that allowed um, the black uh, folks who were interested in pursuing religious careers, the opportunity to become uh, preachers, lay preachers, and then ordained after a certain period of time. Uh-huh. So it was, it was an open. It was a church that was open to the African American community, and uh, they took advantage of it. Right. In fact, you you mentioned uh, something about the Wesleyan discipline. Um, and and what could you say about that as it relates to education, slavery, and and other areas of of life? Well, John Wesley was very much against slavery, and actually, I had something here I was looking at where he writes several times on the, on the on the issue of slavery. One of his works is called Thoughts Upon Slavery, and this was written in the 1800s and 1774 so this was long before our our civil war uh and he says give liberty to whom liberty is due that is to every human child to every partaker of human nature so this was a man who whose philosophy was that uh you 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 didn't um enslave people and and leave them from the hands of uh god's um uh, uh benefits you 
brought them in and helped them to become part of the community of people, of humans. And they talk about the issue of uh, what they call world brotherhood. And the Methodist Church not only was active in the, the slave community, but it also sent uh, missions over to Africa, and they were very prominent in the Liberian um, movement. So you'll meet okay. people from Africa who also Methodist. I happen to be a, a member of a church that has a very large um, presence of people who are from other parts of the world, black black people who are uh, part of the Methodist movement. Mhm. Well, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing right now, and it's it's a caller, and this caller has a question, and I'm going to let this caller come on. They're at area code 504, and they have a question. Uh, area code 504, do you have a question or a comment for uh, Dr. Elaine? Yes, greetings, uh, Dr. Adams and Ms. Bernice Bennett. I'm calling from New Orleans. And uh, we've spoken before, Ms. Bennett, <laughs> but uh, I was very uh, interested in, in, in the caller's research about her great-grandfather, and I wanted to ask uh, Ms. Adams, uh, I actually have in my hand a book that was written entitled Religion and the Rise of Jim Crow in New Orleans, and what it focuses on is the Methodist Movement among African Americans in New Orleans. Yeah, yes, I have that book. Okay, great, great. And um, what you were saying was very interesting because one of my ancestors uh, was the wife of Pierre Calise Landry, who was the first black mayor of Donaldsonville. Yes. And he was a Methodist minister in yeah, and, and, and I church. do know Pierre Landry's uh, grandson. I worked with him at Booker T. Washington High School in New Orleans. Okay, okay. Uh, and so I was just, uh, you were talking about your great-grandfather being illiterate, but what I found out, like with Pierre Calise Landry and, and many other enslaved blacks, there was a kind of hierarchy on the plantation where there were some blacks allowed to read and kind of even serve as managers and stuff of the, of the story that was on the plantation. Yes, yes. That yeah, that's so. that's quite true. That um, uh, but the, but the Methodists were careful because you had you know uh, legal restrictions against uh, reading mm -hmm. uh, among among African Americans, and so uh, a lot of their religious activities in 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 terms of church activities would involve memorization or singing and having messages communicated through song and and uh, having good preaching. That's one of the critical things that uh, the Methodists emphasized was a good preacher because the the person who played that role, that lay pastor, that, that black man or woman who was working to communicate the religious beliefs, um, had to be a, a, a good communicator and had to okay. be able to, you know, inspire people. Okay, okay. And one more, I'm, I'm going to go. Could you tell me the years you worked at Booker T. Washington High School? <laughs> one thing about people from New Orleans, uh, Bernice, is that we all have a link. <laughs> and I worked at Booker <laughs> T. Washington 
from uh, I was uh, uh, there in 1961 to 1966. Wow, because my father graduated in 1965. <laughs> Who is your father? <laughs> His name was Warren Jones. I'm named after him. Okay. And well, I, no doubt him. I know him. I hope I passed him. I gave him a good grade. <laughs> he talked about him as Conley, was his English teacher. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> thank you very much, caller. Thank you for calling okay, in. You. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and come back on in a minute. Just a quick break. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from iTunes and Blog Talk Radio. You have been listening to Dr. Elaine Parker Adams. She is the author and great-granddaughter of the Reverend Peter Wellington Clark, and the book is the Reverend Peter W. Clark, Sweet Preacher and Steadfast Reformer. Well, before I go back to some questions about your research, how did you come up with the title? I came up with this title, uh, Bernice, by uh, going through some of his writings and just looking for something. I said, now what expresses him uh, best? And he uh, mentions in his editorial, Eyes That Are Open, he says, one of our greatest needs is a consecrated ministry, sweet preaching and no reformation of the lives of the people is no good. So in in in, he, in reality, what he's saying is that if a preacher just you know talks well and is a smooth operator as far as uh, his audience, uh, that's not enough unless he can make that person change their behavior. And that's the title's uh, implication that you have a person in Peter Clark who was an excellent excellent orator. He he was a, an outstanding preacher, but he also had the desire to help people um, improve their lives and become better Christians. Ah, okay. Well, let's, let's go back to Peter Clark and your research about your family. Did your family have any any documents or can you just tell us what you what you uncovered in your own house? 
In my own house, um, uh, most of what I recovered uh, were photographs. We had no written documents. I mean, these were folks who had, uh, when they uh, were very, very young, my my mother and my uncle uh, had been moved to another city away from where Peter Clark lived, and essentially um, they lived on premises. They were household servants along with their mother and their grandmother. So they did not have a lot of possessions to carry around. Uh, photographs, however, uh, I did manage to, to get a lot of photographs. Uh, only a few were from the early years where these folks lived because most most of the family uh, died very young. And so you're talking about photographs from the early 20th century. But I did have one of each of the children except Louis, and I had photographs of the great grandfather and the great grandmother, and those are in the in the book along with uh, my mother and my uncle, and my grandmother who married uh, into the family. Into the family, and what about yeah. oral history? Uh, very little in oral history because, as I mentioned, you had this religious shift where. The family, uh, the children were uh, were now Catholic, and their children became Catholic or were, were, were baptized Catholics as infants. So uh, you 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 didn't have any discussion of Methodism. Uh, we observed that our grandmother went to another church, uh, but we never discussed religion with her at all. Mhm. Mhm. So, as far as you can tell, most of your your documents or your information about Peter is from the South. What the what was the uh, it, publication? It's, it's the from the Southwestern Christian Advocate. Advocate. That was a major source, and and uh, then other uh, books about Methodism, uh, books about uh, that period of time. Uh, books about how women fared in that period of time, as well as men. Um, there, there is a very uh, good bibliography with this book. I, I made sure that I documented um, what I wrote about because so many times you'll get a biography or you'll get a book, and it has a story in it, but there are no resources for others to go to, you know, to to expand what they know. Uh, I tried to. To, to assemble a, a strong bibliography and also an index so people could look up the names of their family members and see if they are mentioned. Uh, and, and again, I hope it inspires people to, to do more research on their own and then add to this history of uh, what black folks did in terms of the religious development of the South. Yes, yes. Well, I'm just really curious uh, because as a as a minister, did Peter Clark have a, a facility that he preached out of, or was he somewhere in the brush arbors? <laughs> well, uh, uh, P- Peter Clark started um, out as an itinerant uh, um, minister, uh, and in fact, he was a what they call a circuit rider, where you would go from one location to another and preach, uh, often you didn't have any place other than a brush arbor where uh, the people in that community might put together stands of uh, branches and 
a little roof with branches. And on the day they worshipped, they gathered under these branches. Um, what he was to do is, uh, after they got strong enough, if you had enough people that were interested, help them to build a church. And so he built several Methodist churches. Uh, and he, of course, was part of the Wesley tradition at that time, which meant you would get an assignment for two or three years, and then you would be assigned to another another church. Uh, so often he would be going into an assignment where he had to build a church as well as a parsonage, a place to live. Yes, and so we have several questions coming out of here, out of the, the chat room, and it's going almost back to the original question I asked you. So what was your, your major inspiration uh, to to try to find and, and, and tell people this story about Peter Clark? Well, I when I when I went to that page uh, on on Louisiana uh, Methodist and did not see uh, blacks um, mentioned or uh, shown in and photographs, uh, I knew we had a big problem because there was a big mm-hmm. hole in hole in history, and I yes. wanted to help fill that hole. I don't I don't think if we wait much longer. There will be enough people who have memories of these events and and, and and can assemble that history. I think our generation is key in this whole process. We we're going to have to put together a lot of the information that never got assembled. We may have talked about it. We have oral traditions, but if we want it to to live uh, uh, forever, we need to write it. We need to record yeah. it in some way. That's right. We need to get it out there. Well, tell us about some of the communities where Peter Clark uh, served uh, as a preacher. Well, he served in in terms of the seven district, and the Methodist Church is very a very structured uh, religion. They have uh, districts in Louisiana, and the only one he didn't serve in was Shreveport. So he served in Baton Rouge. Uh, Acadiana, uh, Monroe, Alexandria, New Orleans, and Lake Charles. And in some cases, you'd have uh, a rural setting where there was nothing but that brush arbor. Uh, And so when he was early in his assignments in Baton Rouge, he would often have to put that church together. And then later on, um, when he was assigned to places like New Orleans, um there would be there were already churches there uh one of his assignments in New Orleans was to be the New Orleans um um mission leader where he would go into an area of New Orleans that didn't have any churches and try to get people interested enough to build a church and then you he would go to another area so he sort of like was a a church franchiser where you mm-hmm. set up a church and you get that one going, and then you it, th- these were tent churches initially, and then he would go to another area and set up his tent, do his recruitment, get people stabilized, and then move on. So he did okay. the mission work. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, he uh, did the mission work. And you have a question coming in right now, and this is from area code five zero. 
510, you're, you're live. You have a question or a comment? Uh, hello, this is Dr. Sandra Redman. Hello, Dr. Adams. How are you, Dr. Redman? I'm Sonia fine, is a very and good friend um, of I'm mine. looking forward to reading your book. Could you tell me what was the greatest uh, joy and the greatest challenge you faced in uh, doing genealogical research and in writing the book and finishing it? Well, I tell, I tell you, uh, Sonia, it was one of those things where I knew I had a man who had had really given his heart to the Methodist Church, and I felt so bad that there was there was nothing you know available to communicate his history or his contribution and so when i was finally able to get all of this assembled and and put into a, a book form uh i i felt very you know proud of the fact that he was here was an opportunity now to make him live forever where people could go and get his biography and really read about what he has done uh, and he gave he gave virtually his life for for the Methodist Church. Um, it's not easy to move every three years with a family, and in his case, he had six kids. You move with your family, you get settled, you build a church, or you build a parsonage, or you fix one up, and then boom, you're moving again. But he did this with dedication for uh, decades. So I, I was proud to be able to, to to put his story together so he could be recognized. Yes. And, I, and that is something to be proud of. And well, the greatest I, I, challenge? Uh-huh. The challenge, uh, you, 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 if you're doing genealogy, um, you're going to get to those little uh, surprise, surprise pages, pages or, 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 or you get to a get point to where you can't, where you can't Go any further as far as your uh, your facts, and you've got to figure out okay, how do I break this this wall down and figure out what's happening? And I, and a lot of times it would be something where uh, in in looking at the newspaper an issue would be missing, and you, your first thought is to say, oh, well, one issue, you know, what importance would that be? But invariably, the issue that would be missing would have extremely vital information. So you have to persist and go back when something is missing and say, I've got to find what was in this gap here that I'm, I'm, I'm encountering. I can't just ignore it. For example, uh, in 1891, uh, Peter Clark lost uh Half over half of his family, his wife died, and four of his children, and they died over a period of time. It wasn't an accident; it was uh, illness. So that particular issue was a missing one. Well, that you, you, those are key factors. Knowing that this man has lost his family, and actually, you would say, "Well, wow, that ought to knock him out, and he shouldn't be able to continue," but he kept going. So those were the that that was the, the dif- difficult part, the missing facts and trying to figure out how do I obtain those facts. Right, and I guess that was some, a very difficult period of time for him to yes, to lose his was. family. Yes. Now I have two questions coming out of the chat. The the what years did Peter Clark serve, and did he travel with his family? Um. 
his timeline goes his his first assignment was around eighteen eighty eight we we're gonna have a period from about eighteen eighty actually eighteen eighty six to nineteen fourteen because he died uh in service he was he was uh assigned to warren uh united methodist church in lake charles at the time of his death uh his wife would travel with him he he was she's as as much of a person needing recognition as he although she wasn't as as prominent because she would have to pack up and move six kids when he would get uh, reassigned. Now, some Methodist ministers and some ministers in other religions that do a tenoracy, uh will have a, a home base and then a church assignment. Uh, they do the church assignment and return back to the home base every week or every so many weeks. In the case of Peter Clark, he always lived in his assignment, uh, except when he was the district superintendent in Lake Charles, and at that time they, the family stayed in New Orleans. But apart from that, the children and the and the mother were were with him. In in the case of a district superintendent of the Methodist Church, you're pretty much on the road all the time because you have to go to different churches each week. So it didn't make any sense for them to you know to move. They stayed uh, in in a, in a New Orleans. Um, uh, location and he went on the road. Yes, well, you know, you you I I read your book and there's a there's a comment or a statement that you make in the book that choosing to be a Methodist Episcopal minister in Louisiana was not the most secure or tranquil career to choose. Tell us a little bit more about that comment. Well, that comment comes from the uh, fact that after the, the, the Civil War, during the Reconstruction period, um, any any, any uh, uh, person on the road would be, uh, who was a black man or a black woman, would be subjected to um, potential danger. And because they were circuit riders uh, and they went from one place to another to preach, uh, often they would be traveling alone. So in that way, it was dangerous. And, and, and at least one story in the book mentions how a minister was attacked on the road and uh, almost lost his his life uh, because he was out. And, of course, without anybody to defend him, he was uh, you know, besieged by... Um, some of the lawless folks in the in the in the community. Mhm. Mhm. And this so was really it, uh, racial. It was you know it was it was uh, uh, the white community was was uh, not happy with the, the freedom that these black folks experience, and so when they had opportunities, many of them would would um, take take out their frustrations and. In ways that harmed uh, some of their their fellow men. Oh yes, which it was a very I mean difficult time, and we were talking about we're going into Jim Crow and a whole lot of other yes. uh, problems in in the in the community. So it was just extremely difficult. So, yes, a black minister would really have to negotiate. He would have to be a person yeah. who could really negotiate 
not only did he have to negotiate for himself, but he was also a person often expected to negotiate for the whole community. And you see that in Lake Charles when uh, the axe murders uh, were taking place uh, to to get the community uh, assembled and to get people able to uh, increase their security required that the minister go to the the white power structure uh, and and get permission to pull black folks together under one roof because assemblies were potentially dangerous as far as the white community was concerned because uh, you could get people who would go into you know revolt. Uh, so he was a person who had to negotiate for himself and others. Yes, yes. Now, we have a question coming out of the chat, and this is someone who's familiar with Peter Wellington Champ Clark. And the question is, was Reverend Clark known to his namesake, the writer Peter Wellington Champ Clark? Was he known to him? Uh, Yes. Uh, in 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 the sense that he knew he had a grandfather who was a, uh, a prominent minister, uh, but of course uh, his grandfather died uh, when he was uh, in 1914 before he was born, so he never met him. Mm-hmm. He yes. he just no. simply knew whatever was spoken of him. Uh, in in the family, which was fairly limited, again, because of the difference in religions. Right. Well, I know that you you mentioned uh, several times that Peter, uh, Reverend Peter Wellington Clark, uh, has written uh, several times articles. Is there something that you would like to share with us, one of his writings or a, a memorable statement that he uh, he coined that you have thought of and used in your own life? Uh, he he wrote uh, editorials uh, about several issues, including uh, his his uh, plea for the homeless, and I and I try to volunteer with the homeless myself. Uh, he he knows the city is going to have people who are going to be in need, and he makes uh-huh. a plea that, um, you know, he says as of, of New Orleans, he says the crowded, hungry, homeless city is going to be our problem as well as it is of some other people. All sorts and conditions of men are here, and still they come. And he says that New Orleans and Louisiana Methodism must awake and, and see the importance of our opportunity so he sees uh-huh. helping the homeless as an opportunity that we can bring these people into a uh, 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 living that, that gives them some opportunity to be successful. Yes. And so I find indeed, that very he inspirational. Was a That's he right. Was, he was a pioneer, right. just as you said. Yes, definitely. Yeah, he, was, he, he, he also was somebody who didn't bite his tongue, so I'm sure some of the things he wrote might have gotten him into a little trouble. <laughs> Uh, he was he was quite frank, uh, and uh, one of the, one of the uh, statements he makes is about uh, the the ministers who are um, kind of flaunting um, material goods, you know, the the rings and the coats and the, the fancy attire. And he says that's not what our purpose is. So mm-hmm. he. Uh, 
he probably stepped on a few few toes. And he well, says he, also, here's something that I thought was 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 one of those things that might make people turn around and say, "Well, wait, where is this guy coming from?" He says, "Some churches will not have the services of a preacher that will dare to preach a whole gospel when a congregation smiles at their pastor for preaching against the evil of the day." I say he ought to use heavier guns and try to get a more commanding position. So uh, he sort of liked to shake up his his uh, congregation. Mm, okay. Well, you know, th- there's a question coming out of the chat, and it's interesting that you would say he tried to shake up, <laughs> you know, shake yep. up that congregation, <laughs> get them to move. There wasn't a passive uh, environment that they they needed to just sit and listen. They needed to do something and to be active. Exactly. So it's, and I, I'm hearing you you say that that's who he was, and that's yeah. how the community uh, was able to move forward because they had his leadership and his drive and 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 all of the experiences that he has had by traveling to different churches to say you have to do something. You can't yeah. just sit here. Yes. Well, how has the Methodist Church hierarchy accepted your book? I went to, uh, the, there is a, a group called the uh, Black Methodist for Christian Renewal, BMCR, and mm-hmm. I did attend uh, one of their uh, conferences in San Antonio and had a chance to share the book with them, and they were very, very pleased with it. Uh, I haven't had a chance to get into a Louisiana um, uh, conference. Uh, I think in January I'll be heading to Louisiana and talk to his last church, the uh, Warren United Methodist Church. Uh, and so I'm I'm, I'm getting uh, invitations to go and to, and to chat and to kind of talk about what what his life was like. And um, for folks to share their experiences in, in terms of building their churches, because so many of these these churches required a lot of struggle, and yes, even now they yes. they still struggled because uh, of the amount of money it costs to to maintain facilities and to pay pastors and to to do all all the services that you want to do. Right. Why? Well, you know, I'm wondering as you, as you talk about you know visiting and and sharing sharing you your book, are you also encouraging the different churches to write stories about the ministers? Well, that's one of my my goals is that there will be uh, people that will take up the pen and do their own writing. I I got a letter earlier this week that was just really it made me feel very good. It's a uh, minister in Oakland, and he wrote and uh, said as soon as he got the book, he started writing his own story. His his mother and father and grandfather were involved in another church. It wasn't a Methodist church, but he says that history needs to be told. And and this is what I'm hoping is going to happen as as people you know realize you can put together these stories. Uh, they start doing their own family's history and their own church's history. And Louisiana has done a pretty good job of that because one of the things uh-huh. that Tim Abair did was have each of his churches uh, in the in the conference uh, write a, uh, a brief story about how the church developed. 
So if you go to their their site online, uh, you'll see little stories about the churches, and they'll name some of the prominent ministers who who were at those churches. Uh, one of the things I was able to do with Peter Clark because of his own writing of his events and activities was to um, describe how each of his assignments, um, you know, evolved. Uh, and I don't know if I've seen uh, anybody um, do that in uh, a bi- biography of this this type. I haven't seen any black ministers' biographies that were able to break down assignments um, in, in the way this one was done for Louisiana Minister Peter Clark. Yes, and and that's certainly a model that others can uh, can look at. Use that as I'm an example. I'm hoping that'll happen. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, did you um, encounter any surprises as you went through your research? Well, I was certainly surprised by the axe murderer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you would you would, you would have events like that that uh, occurred that you had not 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 anticipated. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, that was one that 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 was ironic because this was his last assignment. I said, "Wow, the man had, had a pretty peaceful existence, and boom, he's got an axe murder to deal with." Uh, but there were other um, things like Union Chapel, where he was given an assignment in a church in the red light district, and uh, Methodists uh, had sued the city of New Orleans to keep that church uh, excluded from the boundaries of the the red light district. Uh, And the district was supposed to, uh, you know, contain all of the prostitutes and and, uh, kind of focus crime in in one area rather than having it all throughout the city. Well, they lost the suit. And uh, eventually uh, they had to close Union Chapel down because um, the children that came to Sunday school could could not enter. They were barred from the from the church because children were not supposed to be in the red light district. You could have your children taken away from you, and so that was a, a you know an interesting story uh, to to uncover. Uh, and and then the fact that he had um, done some work with uh, Booker T. Washington's movement and uh, other movements where uh, he was uh, to help increase the number of Methodists uh, and his mission work. I thought the mission work was kind of an interesting experience. Uh, I thought that franchising was very uh, innovative. You know, set up a tent, do something, and move on. Set up another tent, and actually, these tents would lead to to uh, permanent facilities. Yes. But yeah, yes. there were a lot of interesting stories in his in his lifetime. Uh, the book goes also into his family life, which uh, uh, was very touching because um, illness really, really tracked his family, and of his his first wife uh and his and her and and that family i believe two of eight children uh reached adulthood and in the family with my great grandmother they had six children and only one reached 30 and he 
uh, probably owes his life to the fact that he was a big kid and uh, he joined the Army as a teenager. And, of course, the Army had the right kind of diet and exercise and whatnot to help to help him stay stay healthy uh and this allowed him to actually reach old age. He didn't die until his seventies, but he was the only mm-hmm. child that made that made it that far. All of his other children died as um, young children or teenagers young adults oh wow. Mhm. And I mean there's a question. So these respiratory problems took so many children, I mean, all all over the uh the state. Which was yes, actually, very, very there, sad. That that's a very um critical part because I think a lot of folks weren't aware of how serious tubercul tuberculosis uh was taken in terms of the black community. Uh actually some of the newspapers felt that TB would be the way to solve the the black problem, the so-called black problem. In other words, mm-hmm. uh, eventually the, that population would die off, and uh, uh, that was one problem. And then also the issue of um, color uh, came up because uh, black uh, 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 members of the community who who were darker in color felt that the lighter colored uh folks were more prone to having tb and so that was another mm. issue in terms of um uh people shunning others and 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 not having um uh a lot of desire to to help other people and it turned out peter clark's family was a was light complexion the, the this this was not something where they wanted to have any kind of identification w- with uh, TB because it would would lead to them being shunned. Wow! Wow! You know, a lot of times, a lot <laughs> yeah. of times in our community, we talk about discrimination within the race as being discrimination against people who have darker complexions, but there were. Uh, activities in our community that actually discriminated against people who were of mixed race or lighter complexions. So this was one of those instances where um, uh, one black minister said he never had seen a light complexion. He had never seen a dark complexion person with TB. He only saw people who had light complexions with TB. Right. So, so you so you had this thing. whole mix going around in the community. I yeah. Can, I can imagine yeah. what it what it was like during that time. Well, do you have any? Believe it or not, we're getting close to the end. Do you have any parting words of wisdom or any additional information you would like to share with the the listeners? Well, I, I do want to encourage people to um, visit the libraries and find out what's available in terms of digitized research. A lot of rare information is 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 coming online, and um, not only the public libraries, but but many of the academic libraries, like the universities and the theological libraries have information online that you can access from your home. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you know, if you've got a library card, you have uh, a fortune. That's a treasure. 
And I did some of my research with the Southwestern Christian Advocate right from my own home computer. Now, one of the things that if you are going to, you know, seriously try to assemble a, a biography, you need to have a little bit of a travel budget because sometimes you just simply won't be able to access it uh, from your location. You have to go visit the library itself. That's uh, and, right. And, and that's a little, um, that might require a little little uh, money, but there are also grants out there that you might pursue. And um, sometimes you can find someone on the campus, uh, usually uh, school libraries, academic libraries, college libraries, have students who are willing to do research for, you know, for an hourly fee, and and that would save some of your travel costs. But but that was something that I thought needed. Um, I I hadn't planned for it. I didn't. I, I uh, was surprised that I could do so much of it uh, from a from a computer at home. Um, I did also have to do some traveling. I spent a lot of time at at um, SMU at Southern Methodist University, which had some of the archives I needed. Right, uh, and I, I was going ahead. to say uh, we also need to be in 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 terms of historically black, black colleges and universities. We really do need to be exploring. Uh, their archives to be sure that everything is is being maintained uh, because some of my visits to um, the libraries on on HBCUs, I found um, the materials were still in paper format, and at this point they're beginning to disintegrate. So oh, yeah. we yeah, need to yeah. we need to make sure that our own resources that we're keeping or either copied or in some way preserved. We can't just just watch it turn to dust. Right, and that could be a challenge to the the researchers out there and the uh, genealogists that if you're going to uh, have documents that are going to be available forever, then perhaps you need to go to some of these uh, historically black universities and offer your assistance to help archive and or digitize some of the information that they have. Yes. Now, I have two questions coming out of the chat. First of all, how long did it take you to write your book? And the second question is, did you have access to any church records? Oh, it took me several years. I'd, I'd, I'd say after I, I retired, which was about uh, 2007, it's, it's, it's been since that time. I, after I retired, I started devoting a lot of attention to this. So it took five five years. Um, five years. The, uh, I'd say about five years. And, um, yes, I used, um, actually, the Southwestern Christian Advocate is uh, a church document. It was a church publication for black Methodists in the South. Uh, and I also went to Southern Methodists and used their archives. I went to Dillard, which is a Methodist was a Methodist linked institution, and used their archives. Um, that there were um, items that were um, archival that could not be checked out. And then I also had books that were coming out recently that I could purchase or I could borrow uh, that could be checked out. 
Right. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show tonight and sharing your amazing story about the Reverend Peter Wellington Clark and also encourage individuals, if you have not purchased the book, to uh, purchase Dr. Adams' book. It is an intriguing book. It is a, a wonderful book to read, and I think that you will learn a lot about the black Methodists and the role that the Methodist church played in uh, helping blacks. So thank you so much. Well, thank everyone, you I very much. To... Uh, I'm okay. sorry. I, I was just uh, going to say, Bernice, one day we will find our common ancestor. Yes, one day we will. We still have we a lot. <laughs> yes, we have we have a lot in common, and we just need to start digging into those records to find that that common link. Well, everyone, please join me next Thursday for an interesting show with family historian and motivational speaker Michael Williams. The topic for next week is rediscovering your kinship village. Now, as a motivational keynote speaker, Michael shares his journey to verify family lore through DNA testing. Michael's inspirational story empowers families to follow clues shared in oral histories. And so he is going to just take us just on this real, real fascinating journey next week. So I'd like to say thank you. Good night, Dr. Parker. And remember, everyone, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of AfroGenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. Also, remember to listen to the African Roots podcast tomorrow with Angela Walton-Raji and Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell and on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice BB's Genealogy and Educational Services. So good night, everyone, and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night.